What's up, Beardos? You're listening to episode 124 of the Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to you. don't be a jerk. Don't really answer your question first. I'm not answering your question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talk about beer. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com. You can always reach us by emailing thebeardvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been eating, go over the news, and then conclude by asking the question, is pleasure-based advocacy harmful to animals? I can't wait to talk about this, Paul. These are two articles that are really juxtaposing some some viewpoints, and I've been mm-hmm. sitting on them for for a hot minute, and we thought this is the time to break them out, and I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion, because I don't know how I feel about this. Yeah, I, I got a pretty good idea, Andy, but I feel like this one might be the one where we disagree about something. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? Maybe. It might be the one where I feel the most personally attacked. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> So, but before that, we got a couple announcements to make. As you know, dear Beardos, we started our our Patreon a few weeks ago at this point. And one of the main goals that we had in starting this was to eventually get our episodes transcribed. And we're only $20 away from reaching our first goal. and, And the result of reaching that will be to get one episode transcribed every month. But we wanted to kind of give everyone a taste of what the transcriptions would look like. So we actually had last week's episode transcribed. And you can right now go to the show notes for that episode and check out there will be a link for the transcription. So you can kind of see what the transcription will look like. And and maybe by the time this episode comes out, we'll have reached that goal and, and we'll be on our way to getting another episode transcribed. Yeah, this is really exciting for us. This is something that we've had, you know, several people reach out to us and, and wonder if it's possible to get episode transcriptions, which, of course, make us more accessible to the deaf and hard of hearing. And obviously, we, we want that. And of course, it just takes a little bit of money to do it. And we had an amazing listener reach out and offer to do it at a discounted rate. So we're, able, we're starting to hit this goal a lot sooner than we thought we would. So we're really excited about that. So thank you, Alex, for, for making that possible for us. Yeah, and and the last thing we'll say about the Patreon for now is that one of the perks of supporting the Patreon, no matter how much money you you choose to donate, is that you get access to the Patreon feed. And at the time of that you're listening to this right now, we have just recently released another bonus episode for the Patreon feed, so you can check it out and listen to our review of another episode of the Netflix series Rotten. And I have to say this <laughs> this episode of Rotten drove us both up a wall i Mm -hmm. felt like i was living in bizarro world so (laughs) it was it was a fun episode to record so yeah go check that out if you want to find any of that stuff just go to thebeardedvegans.com slash beardo that's b-e-a-r-d-o and it'll get you to where you need to go last thing i'll say about that episode of rotten andy something was certainly stinky about it (laughs) (laughs) yes indeed yes indeed so andy you had a amazing and unique experience this past weekend in terms of food tell me about it this is true this is true i don't know how unique because i shared it with eighty thousand other people but (laughs) but one of them none of them were me so it was unique to me 
it makes me so sad whenever you're not with me, but I went <laughs> to the Natural Foods Product Expo, also known as Expo West, and this is the big trade show where a lot of products that are in the natural food market you know things you'd probably find at like a whole foods for instance like those types of foods they're all those brands are there they're representing and a lot of them are debuting new products and there's a lot of boring stuff like supplements like there's just like aisles and aisles and aisles of supplements how dare you andy <laughs> i i love my b12 but <laughs> i don't get excited over a new b12 supplement like coming out <laughs> to the market uh, the whole the whole event is not vegan but a lot of the, the vegan companies are there so i went around i spent two days just going to as many places as i could and i'm going to talk about my top three finds right now paul so this is hard because like everyone under the sun is there for the most part and they're all, they're all debuting new things. So uh, it was tough to, to narrow them down, but my number, number three is going to be no evil foods. And this is a brand that I've been familiar with. They're from Asheville, North Carolina, or at least somewhere in North Carolina. And so they, they've been at a lot of the veg fest they do in North Carolina and seem like really cool people. And, so I've tried their stuff before, but not all of it. So I got to try their whole line. And what they are is they're, they're plant-based meats. And, Paul, you know I'm not a huge seitan guy. So I'm not <laughs> normally, like, one to sort of rave in, over products that are mostly just sort of, like, flavored seitan. But they have, like, a chicken variety. They have a pulled pork variety. They have a sausage. And they have a chorizo. And everything I ate was so good and it makes me really happy because as much as i'm excited about the future of like beyond me and stuff it is nice to still get excited by something that feels like someone probably just made it in their kitchen now this isn't their case because they're just expanding to a new facility they're going to be popping up all over the place but i thought their food was fantastic my my number one from them was the chorizo because it felt like it had it had all the flavor but it also felt like really kind of nice and, and fatty like you want a chorizo to be Paul, what are you smiling about? Did it have that snap? <laughs> no snap. I mean, it's all like crumbled up like you'd put in like a taco or something like that. But it was it was delicious. So that was No Evil Foods, who brand I was familiar with. Brand I wasn't familiar with coming at number two is a brand called Sore Babes. And they're a new sorbet company. And I feel like normally I'm not that excited about sorbet as well because when you go to like a, 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 like a non-vegan ice cream shop and you go in there and you find out their only option is like a sorbet and you're like, oh, come on, I want the ice cream. But they're doing something really unique and that they have the, the fruit based sorbets, but they also have nut based sorbets. So they had this pistachio with sea salted caramel. They had a peanut butter banana. They had um, on the fruit side, they had passion fruit with vanilla bark and orange zest. And the flavors that they got out of this, it was like among the best fruity sorbets i've ever had but the the nut based one so it's like instead of using like a scoop of pureed fruit or whatever they're using a scoop of peanut butter and they're the first brand apparently to do that so hmm. it was it was just so good it was so good I, I i it was one of those things where it was the end of the day and it was the final aisle and i just didn't think i would care you've tried like a million new vegan ice creams and stuff so the fact that like this store stood out after doing all of that Tells me it's something special, so I can't wait to see more. I am also usually not excited about sorbet, but that does sound good. And I'm also excited about I do get excited about portmanteau of words though, so sorbets <laughs> tickles my fancy. 
Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And, you know, something that I actually really like about Expo is that there are the brands like Dea that have this just monument to Dea. It's like a 40 (laughs) by 40 display with like 50 employees and it's two stories tall and all that stuff. But then you meet companies like Sorbabes where the owners and the founders are the ones that are working the booth and you get to talk to them and learn about their company and learn their story and see how excited they are about what they're doing, which to me is really a special thing. And so it doesn't doesn't even though it's this giant corporate event that people are throwing, you know, tens of thousands of dollars at a minimum to have a display there. You know, you're sort of meeting people that are getting in on the ground level. And that's really cool. That is cool. And my number one, it's almost not even fair because it was definitely the talk, the talk of the vegan town, Paul. I have to put the new Beyond Sausage at number one. Now, if you remember last last episode, I tried the new Beyond Bratwurst at mm-hmm. Veggie Grill, and I thought it was good, but it was missing that snap. It was missing <laughs> the greasiness, and the flavor just wasn't quite what I wanted it to be. And I, and I posited that maybe it's just because all I think of when I think of sausage is like an Italian sausage with some fennel in there and, and all those flavors. And I got to try the sweet and the hot Italian flavors there, and they were mind-blowingly good. <laughs> They had a little bit of that snap that I was looking for. <laughs> they were cooked. They were. They weren't even cooked in like a pan. They were on like those like log roll jamboree things that you see at like a Seven Eleven. Oh my god! Uh, and that and that still got it like nice and greasy. And there's a little snap for the first couple bites. And it's something that I went back to multiple times because it was just so good. It was so good. And I'm so excited for these to roll out. I believe they said that in May is when they'll be hitting shelves kind of nationwide. So definitely be on the lookout for that. But cool. I, I think I, I don't, I don't use this lightly, Paul, but a bit of a game changer. Oh, and the star of the show, I'm assuming. <laughs> Game-changing star of the show. So, <laughs> so those are my top three. I, I know that not everyone loves the food talk, and it's also it's kind of funny that we're doing this during this particular episode. People will realize why when we get to the main discussion. <laughs> but if you want to hear what I thought about a, a whole host of other things, if you want to hear about the new Dea cheese sticks, all the yogurts that are coming out, which are from Follow Your Heart, from Vega, from Dea, from Ripple, Paul, if you want to mm. hear about Good Catch, which is making this vegan tuna. If you want to hear about the new Dea burritos or the Miyoko's cream cheese or the Violife blue cheese or all the new chow dressings, uh, Paul and I have recorded a little extra, little extra something, something that we're putting up in the Patreon for people to listen to. If if this is your thing and you really want, if my opinion bears any weight to you and you want to hear <laughs> me talking about food for for a while, uh, head over to the Patreon, which is again just thebeardvegans.com slash beardo, and you can you can check that out. Cool. And the last the last thing I'll say about Expo is that I ran into a beardo by the name of Jill there, who who spotted me from afar and came up and <laughs> are you, you you Andy? So we had a little chat, got some food recommendations. So thank you to Jill for coming to say hi. Nice. All right. With that said, we got we got two items of follow up. Paul, hit us with that first one. So last, if you remember last, if you remember all the way to last week when we did our episode about the, <laughs> if you've been taking your B twelve and you remember all the way to last week. <laughs> We were talking about Veganuary, and and we had gone over an article that had that had a more in depth analysis of the 2017 results, and we had said, oh, hopefully they'll be putting out this analysis of the 2018 results, and lo and behold, here it is. This came out a couple days ago on March 13th, so the Veganuary 2018 results, and what they kind of concluded was that 
uh, the majority of participants will stay vegan, according to the the title of the article. So it looks Very like nice. they had. It looks like, like we had said last week, they had 168,500 participants for 2018, and 62% said they intended to stay vegan. And from this article, the reasons that they cited were that they learned more about the issues, such as animal cruelty and environmental impact. That was 86% of people that said that. Being vegan was easier than they expected. 82% said that. Uh, 67% said that they would stay vegan because their health improved. I think this is this is really interesting because the the reasons cited I don't think that those were in the other articles that we were talking about but I think particularly the one that says being vegan was easier than they expected I think that that is probably a really nice benefit of of challenging someone to do it for 31 days because I think a lot of the challenges that are just like sometimes it's just for one day, like just like a micro challenge almost. And sometimes yeah. it's a week. And I feel like those time periods aren't enough to really get someone in the flow of it. And I think by the end of 30 days, you're starting to get in the flow. I'd say most people, it takes like maybe two or three months to like really have it become kind of second nature. But I, I think that that's definitely a really positive side effect of this is that it's just like, just try it. And it won't, maybe you won't think it's as bad or as hard as you think it is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it looks like, Andy, you did a little bit of math at the bottom here. I'm no, listen, I'm no Professor Paul Steller, but <laughs> something that we did talk about in the other episode was, so they have these numbers that seem very positive and very favorable, oh, 62%. And of course, you always have to wonder, well, how many, how many of these 168,500 participants were actually responding to this poll? And so they didn't include as extensive of a breakdown as the the last one we looked at. But this did say the survey was sent to 50% of the 2018 participants. I am unsure why only 50. Hmm. Do you have any reason, any idea why? Is there like a budget on the emails they can send? Oh, or I don't know. I mean, maybe like some maybe some people elect to you know unsubscribe from emails or not receive emails from them you know how you can like unsubscribe yeah, from email yeah. lists maybe that has to do with it but, but like 50 seems like such a a specific num like an intentional number it doesn't yeah. seem like it was just like oh and it came out to be 50 it seems like 50 was i mean it could be because they in their data collection they were like oh we we just can't analyze th this much amount of data we only we only got one person working on this so it would yeah. be i don't know if that maybe that's why i don't know like you said it's there could be a bunch of different reasons I'm not sure yeah so anyway so they sent it out to 50 percent of the people and they said they got a response rate of 14 percent, which i think is actually a little bit less than i think the response rate last time was 16 or 17 percent if i remember correctly don't hold me to that but so that means that 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 pans out to 11,795 people responding to the survey, which is a pretty small percentage of 168,000 people. But if you break that down to the math, that means that 7,312 people intend to remain vegan. And last year was a little over 5,000. So it's definitely an improvement. But I, I, it's hard to really gauge with only 15, 50, half of the people being sent the survey. Because like, okay, would it have actually been 14,000 people? And that would be like a really huge increase. I don't know. But either way, yeah. it's a lot more vegans. And also, also, when you say that from the survey, 7,312 people intend to remain vegan. Again, we don't know how the 
people that did not respond or that were not given the survey. We don't know where they're at. And like we discussed last week, it's I think it's natural to conclude like, well, probably the people that didn't want to respond are they're less likely to be vegan. I think that's a, a, a natural conclusion to make, whether or not that's true or not. But one thing I will say is that Andy and I were having this discussion about a different article beforehand that even though I'm pretty good at math, Andy, don't know too much about statistics. Not not great with statistics. I have not taken statistics in a long time. So if someone has a good, because this, this seems to have come up a lot recently. If someone has a good article or something, they could point to us on how to determine the sample size that you need to have a credible like results, a credible conclusion, send us, send us that uh, our way because with, cause I feel like every episode, it ends up being us being like, that doesn't seem like a lot of people they're surveying, but it might be a fine amount for the, you know, the, what they're trying to prove. Well, our next Patreon goal, Paul is actually us taking some college level statistics classes. So <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yes, but yeah, no. I th- I think overall, though, I'm still I'm still down for Veganuary. I think that it is a solid source of strategy. It's funny. We actually before that episode came out, we actually got an email from someone who just happened to mention that they went vegan because of a 30 day challenge. I don't think it was mm-hmm. Veganuary, but you know they did not know that we were about to talk about it. But I did think it was it was pretty interesting to hear that yeah, from someone. Definitely. All right. So our second bit of follow up comes to us from blog2.com. And this is in reference to our previous discussions about whether or not vegan restaurants should ban fur. And so the title of this article is Toronto Restaurants Start to Take a Stance Against Fur. And we had a few people send us to this and tag us to post about this on our Instagram. So thank you to everyone that brought this to our attention. So this was a campaign conducted by Animal Rights Toronto. And essentially, it's a sign that restaurants can put up in their window. I'm assuming only vegan restaurants, but maybe not. And it says... The, the sign, which depicts a coyote and a winter parka with fur-lined hoodie, says, We prefer that you not wear fur. In smaller print below, it adds, If you're wearing animals' fur, we still warmly welcome you to our establishment, but we hope you'll open your hearts to animals and go fur-free. So, Paul, you know, we, we talked about should there be a sign if they don't decide to ban for outright, should there still be a sign? Should there still be messaging? What do you think about this messaging? It's sort of having it both ways. It's sort of putting it right out there up front, but then saying you're still welcome. I do. Yeah. I like this. And I think this is what I feel like if I remember correctly, we were kind of coming to some sort of conclusion where we where we wanted this in between thing where we were like, we still want people to get the message, but we don't want to, exclude people or or push people away from eating at the restaurant because we we thought that there's a lot of benefit that can be gained from a non-vegan eating in a vegan restaurant or is there andy we'll talk about that later (laughs) (laughs) but no i think that this was a good it was a good medium between like the two extremes of not doing anything and then maybe doing so much being too aggressive and pushing someone away Yeah. So, Paul, the interesting thing to me, if you look at the sign and also just sort of how this this campaign has been sort of portrayed in the media, is that the the small print that says, you know, we still warmly welcome you is, you know, much, much smaller than we prefer that you not wear fur. And I don't know. do Do you think if you were walking by, would you see that small print or would you just feel like this is a ban on fur for the restaurant? Like you can't come in if you wear fur. I think 
Well, I also think that them using the language we prefer you not wear fur like it's not saying it's not saying you're an asshole if you wear fur like yeah like some some signs and stuff do but so it's definitely much less aggressive and i I feel like for that reason i don't i I, someone certainly i think would feel uncomfortable if they were wearing fur and they saw that and they were like oh shoot (laughs) yeah but 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 you know, making someone a little bit uncomfortable can often prompt change. I think it's when you make them extremely uncomfortable or feel threatened. That's when, that's when I I think the effectiveness maybe goes down a little bit, but I think that this is a, it's, it's not aggressive enough that I, I think it would really deter a lot of people. Well, I was reading through the comments on this article. So this is not, I know. I'm sorry, Paul, but I'm going to subject our our listeners to the comments right now. This is not a vegan publication, so there's kind of a wide range of people that see it. And a lot of people did seem to sort of read it as a ban on fur within these restaurants. Uh, You know, and there's positive ones from uh, presumably a vegan that said, there are so many restaurants across the city to choose from, a tons of competition. A restaurant with this sign in the window would definitely get my business. So that is something that could, you know, I guess, bring in more vegans. Um, obviously, when we talked about this issue, we were saying that we want non-vegans to go to vegan restaurants to sort of get them to to open themselves up to it. But then there's also someone who said, just seeing this sign in the window would cause me to take my business elsewhere. It's a free market. You know, so this is someone that clearly did not get the nuances of we prefer and you're still warmly welcome. They just sort of saw this immediately. And of course, the response from someone else was, that's great. There will be less animal abusing human trash to share oxygen wish. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, so it's I guess it also kind of points to my worries that it is kind of divisive, that it does create like an us versus them kind of thing. But I think for anyone that actually takes the time to read the sign. I think I'm really into the the language that they use. So are you going to send them a strongly worded email that says, increase the font of that bottom part? <laughs> I might. I might. <laughs> <laughs> or underline the word prefer. Also, I kind of wish that they spelled prefer with an F-U-R. But, you oh, know, I know. That's just I me. know. That's just we me. prefer you don't wear fur. I actually thought yeah. that's maybe why they chose the word prefer. But I thought, and maybe I could be wrong, but I thought it was nice just because it's a little less uh aggressive yeah yeah i mean it's definitely like the most like polite canadian way of like addressing it (laughs) like we prefer if you don't that's so funny yeah shall we move on to the news andy what do we got paul all right so this is this is an interesting uh article that (laughs) is not something that i feel like we've touched on in a while or we we talk about companion animals or pets uh, like occasionally But this is an element of it that I feel like we haven't touched on in a very long time. So this is from Forbes.com. This vegan biohacker is set to launch the first cultured protein foods for pets. I love that he's called a biohacker, too. I think that's a (laughs) a great title to have. (laughs) I just saw someone post that. He's like, I've been a part of a stealth biohacking firm or something. It's like, <laughs> uh, people love their titles. <laughs> yeah. So this article actually came out uh, today, Andy, March 15th. And so the article goes through what this guy, Ryan Bathencourt, is doing. But before I go over that, I wanted to highlight a stat that they bring up in the middle of the article, which is that there are approximately 163 million dogs and cats in the U.S. alone whose consumption of meat contributes around 25 to 30 percent of its environmental impact. And that, for some reason, Andy, I 
like I don't really think about that normally. I'm I'm always just thinking about what are humans doing. I mean, obviously we are feeding these companion animals, but it's like I'm always thinking about what are the humans eating, blah 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 blah. And so I didn't even think about this before. But this company from CEO Ryan Bathencourt called Wild Earth, they're trying to transform the thirty billion dollar pet food industry. And they're trying to do that with cultured protein products. So, Andy, we've heard of clean meat for animals, but clean meat for companion animals? Did you just say we've heard about clean meat for animals? I did. <laughs> I meant to say clean meat for humans. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that in there so everyone knows how bad I am at talking all the time. Oh, <laughs> you're the best. This guy, Ryan Bathencourt, he's already invested in several companies that use this sort of technology to create ethical and sustainable products. So he's invested in Memphis Meats, which we've talked about before. He's invested in Clean Fish, a clean fish company called Finless Foods. I don't think we've talked about them. And then startups that are also trying to create cultured egg whites and gelatin and making plant-based shrimp. So he's got nice. his... He's got his he's got his paws in a, in like a bunch of different places, which is pretty cool. I didn't know that there was a, a clean fish movement going on. Not that I have a tremendous amount of interest in eating it, but I think that it's cool. So basically, he he started with Wild Earth, his company making not clean meat products for companion animals, but they were it was like a different type of I think it was dog food made out of koji, which is like a mushroom derivative. But now he's moving towards cultured meats for animals which is pretty cool. So they're really well studied and they've traveled the globe and they're just really cultured. <laughs> I didn't know where you're going with that at first. <laughs> but yeah, so they're starting with, it seems like they're starting with mice, cultured mice. So to make cat food and I don't know, it's not something that I've ever thought about before, but I guess, I guess I can get behind this. It's, fu it's funny that they're starting with mice. Cause they're like, that's what, that's what cats eat. But I also feel like cats would eat literally any meat, you know? It's just, it's like a <laughs> oh, weird thing. Like, they're not going to be like, oh, is this ostrich, cultured ostrich meat? I don't want that. I only want mice. I think they might, it like references this a little bit. I think they also might be starting with mice because to me, what I read from this article was because mice have been, you know, like the test animal for generations, we... Yeah know so much about mice and that's why it would be easiest to start with mice that's what i kind of inferred that that he was saying yeah so i think that yeah. might be why they're starting with mice i'm sure it is i just like that they're trying to turn it into like a pr thing like we know cats eat mice oh yeah <laughs> but yeah this this is really interesting because i think that's actually been kind of a glaring omission in our previous discussions about clean meat is the implications of of its use for obligate carnivores. Now, dogs are not obligate carnivores. They don't have to eat meat, but obviously cats are. And obviously a lot of people would prefer to feed their dogs meat. They think that's their natural diet. And so if we can start to provide clean meat that doesn't come from animals for these companion animals that must eat animal products... I feel like that's a huge win. I didn't realize how big of an impact, environmental impact, feeding our companion animals is. And I actually went and, and did some Googling to sort of back up those numbers. And yes, I found multiple sources that said that it's up to 30% of the environmental impact of meat is because we're feeding all these companion animals. Now, I had previously only thought of the majority of companion animal food as being sort of these leftover scraps but obviously it's it's adding up to this huge amount so i think yeah. that this is definitely a really promising 
avenue for clean meat. And I know that we've expressed our concerns about still not being 100% animal free and where the ethics of that and how a lot of the clean meat is grown in the fetal bovine serum, Mm -hmm. which I I guess I didn't necessarily realize this, but this article points out that it's blood harvested from calf fetuses. I don't know why I thought it was something slightly different than that, but (laughs) either way, that doesn't sound too pleasant. And, you know, we saw that Hampton Creek video that was all about, we can just take a feather off the ground that fell off a chicken and, and make, you know, we can grow... Ian, I think was the name of their chicken, right? We can grow Ian's meat yeah. and eat it while Ian wanders, <laughs> wanders around free. And it says that they're working on getting to that sort of technology as well. So, yeah, I think that if they can get to that point and we can we can feed all the companion animals that are in this country and and not have as much environmental impact, that's good. Obviously, not harming the animals is the biggest positive there. So, yeah, I, I'm down with this and I'm excited to for the future of this company. Yeah, and and from the article, it definitely seems. I don't know. I got the impression that it seems like this company has their heart in the right place in not just creating something that's going to be you know profitable, but also something that's going to be uh, ethically sound. Because I think it said similar to what you were pointing out, Andy, that you know right now it's using the fetal bovine serum, but they actually delayed the release of the product so that they could find a different way to do this without using the that fetal bovine serum. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm feeling it, Paul. So yeah, that's, it's pretty cool, I think. But we have one other piece of news that's not so cool, Andy. I'm gonna let you take this one. Uh, thanks, I appreciate that, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is coming to us from ABC News, and it says Trump's USDA withdraws animal welfare regulation for organic farms, sparking backlash. And this is from March 14th. And this got coverage pretty much everywhere. So that's why we're going with this ABC News. In the latest effort to rescind Obama-era regulations, the Trump administration is doing away with a directive aimed at standardizing the way animals are treated on organic farms if their meat is being sold under a, quote, certified organic label. And so this is a regulation that's been in effect for a little while. And in the original sort of papers that passed when this said uh, the reason why this thing was passed. It said a lack of clarity in organic livestock and poultry standards has led to inconsistent practices among organic producers. And this was on the USDA fact sheet that came along with this thing getting passed. Uh, This action assures consumers that organically produced products meet a consistent standard by resolving the current ambiguity about outdoor access for poultry. It also establishes clear standards for raising, transporting, and slaughtering organic animals and birds. Because I guess birds are not animals. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So that's that's what it, it does, is it sort of clarifies what can be classified as organic if it wants to get this certified organic label. And now Trump is sort of stripping those regulations saying that it's a lot looser of a standard to get that organic label on there. And so among those that back the USDA's move is the American Farm Bureau arguing it will keep more farmers in the organic farming business. Quote, had the rule gone into effect, we believe it would have forced a number of organic farmers and ranchers to just basically change their production practices, and it likely would have forced many of them either out of the organic sector, if not out of business. Uh, And that's coming from Dale Moore, who is the uh, executive policy director at the American Farm Bureau. And so 
this is this is like interesting, Paul, because essentially, you know, obviously we're not into the like the welfare stuff. We don't think that's what's saving animals, but it's kind of interesting that these these rules are getting peeled back and they're saying, well, it'd be bad for farmers because they can't meet these standards that you know, like the American public thinks it means one thing and they're like, well, it's bad for them. They're going to go out of business if their shoddy business practices can't be qualified as organic anymore. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, it's such a weird argument that it's like, it's such, it's like, oh, it'd be like if Whole Foods was like, well, more farmers will go out of business if we don't lower the standards for our step five welfare or something, instead Mm -hmm. of making sure that farmers have to meet a specific standard. And so people might be wondering like, well, why is this potentially bad for animals? And so the article says, under the withdrawn regulations, outdoor access was defined more clearly, specifically for egg-laying hens that require outdoor pens. Nice rhyme. Covered porches (laughs) and similar enclosed structures, such as wire-caged pen with concrete floor, would not have qualified as outdoor pens. Most consumers probably don't realize that some of the organic eggs they are purchasing don't actually go outside, but rather they are cages indoors. So... You know, obviously, like I said, we're not into like the welfare standards as our root of activism, but it's also always a bummer when they do get peeled back. Yeah. I have a question, though, Andy, because earlier you had that quote from Dale Moore who said, had the rule gone into effect? So did these like it passed, but it never it never actually went into effect. Right. That's what it seems. That's what it seems like the okay. article is saying. Yeah. All right. I think it passed like late in Obama's term. So, like you were saying, Andy, it, it's. I mean, it definitely sucks. It it just sucks. We don't want the animal. We don't want the conditions to be worse for the animals, but at the same time, it's definitely a, a tricky situation because we don't want to say, well, this shouldn't have happened because the animals need to be treated better. We don't want them to be in that situation at all. It doesn't doesn't. I mean, it does matter how they're treated, but like it's it's it would be easy for someone. It'd be easy for me to see non-vegans getting upset about this, but not because they don't want to stop eating animals because they are just upset with the treatment of animals. Yeah. To me, this is sort of points to how we need to be focusing on comprehensive vegan education, because obviously we're never going to regulate out the use of animals at all. I mean, at least not at this point in time. And it's like, all right, we need to educate people not to purchase these products whatsoever, because we're not we're never going to be able to rely on any government officials, no matter how progressive the government is to do what is right for the animals. And we're steeped in a speciesist society. Yeah, as long as as long as animals are considered property or we commodify them as a society, like there's no way that the laws are going to be in favor of veganism. Because th- as long as we have a law that says you can't steal other people's things or you can do what you want with with your own property, and then as long as animals are considered property, like you can't pass a law that says then everyone has to go vegan. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. So like, so this is a bummer. Obviously we knew everything was going to be shit for pretty much everyone under Trump's rule, uh, obviously for animals as well. It does make me think about that article that we talked about where the one person was like, uh, Trump will be the best thing that happens for animals because he's going to shut down the trade and all of that stuff. Uh, but clearly we just see things getting worse and worse for animals under his presidency it hurts me to say that but under his presidency as well 
So, Andy, that's that the situation is not good. I don't know if there's anything else to say about it right now, but yeah, just double down on vegan education is, is yeah. what I think. Yeah. But with that said, uh, we got to move into our main discussion. But before we do that, we have some amazing, amazing people to thank who have contributed to our Patreon campaign. So thank you very much to Elsa TG, KDR, Bill U. Catherine B. <laughs> Who are you billing? Me? <laughs> Who are you? It's Bill University. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Catherine B. Sky C. Lauren S. Catherine M. Julia L. Scott T. That's my Andrew. dad. <laughs> oh, dad. Hey, dad. Yeah. Hey, dad. Andrea W. Uh, Isabella B. Jacoby Y. Megan P. Crystal K. And Dean. And all of those people signed up to support us on a monthly basis via Patreon. But you also have the option to just give a one-time donation. And the most recent person to do that is Elizabeth H., who did that via PayPal. Thank and so you. if you would like to support the podcast uh, in either of those avenues, you can just go to thebeardedvegans.com slash beardo. That's B-E-A-R-D-O. And it'll get you some options to support the podcast. So thank you, thank you, thank you very much to everyone that does that. Thank you. All right, let's get on to this main discussion. Is pleasure-based advocacy harmful to animals? Yeah, this, this should be interesting. So, Paul, I, I came across an article that came out in October 30th of 2017, and I read it, and I thought, this is really interesting. This is really insightful. This gives me a lot to think about because it's certainly critiquing something that I engage in. And I kind of sat on it for a while until this other article came out pretty recently. So that kind of juxtaposes the ideas in the original one. So we're going to go through both of those, and then we're going to sort of talk about all the ideas that these two articles bring out. So the first one, the one that came out October 30th, by Jonathan Dickstein at Medium.com said, meeting them where they are. And so it kind of starts off by talking about this, this notion of idea legitimization, which essentially is saying, you know, sometimes activism seeking to change people's behaviors actually just further entrenches their, their deep ideas, the ones that are like actually in need of uprooting. And so it goes on to say, this can happen whenever one casually compares the protein content of chicken to black beans or the water usage for cattle to a crop for human consumption. Meeting the audience where they are by casually juxtaposing two products obscures the injustice enabling the juxtaposition, you know, which is essentially like it's 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 horrible that we're even comparing these two things like because to me when you know, I always say if it's not vegan, it's not food. Like I don't view it as like an option for me that I'm like trying really hard to not eat. I just don't see those animal flesh and secretions as food anymore. And so by comparing those two things, are we sort of legitimizing, you know, the, the, the chicken flesh as something that's able to be compared, right? So I thought that was mm -hmm. a pretty interesting idea. Article goes on to say, the danger of idea legitimization haunts contemporary vegan foodie culture and its exaltation of taste pleasure. Leaving aside the controversial emphasis on products, which is distinct from their inclusion in outreach efforts, one of the most common talking points in both vegan and animal liberation advocacy is how human interests in elaborate taste pleasures pale in comparison to non-human interest in not being manipulated, mutilated, and killed. However, 
mainstream vegan foodie culture, specifically as depicted in advertising and social media, routinely reinscribes the assumed weightiness of privileged palate pleasure. Those PPPs. This occurs <laughs> through its promotion of extra tasty boutique vegan foods that tout food hobbyist pleasure more so than simple nourishment. Professing to meet people where they are by reveling in food fetishism, vegan foodies perpetuate the sacralization of taste experience. This is no surprise as they are foodies after all, enjoying and defending food hobbyism like their non-vegan counterparts. However, and ironically so, vegan foodie culture sells the importance of taste pleasure while simultaneously deprecating the pleasures of non-vegans who admit to eating animal bodies because, quote, they just taste so good. Vegan foodies can legitimately, though not comprehensively, defend their own foodiness on the grounds that their taste fixation is uniquely animal-free and for that reason justified. But is it? Regardless, this advocacy angle affirms the taste-driven, animal-commodifying perspective of their audience, which is precisely the foundation that requires destabilization. So, I just read a lot there, Paul, but I think a lot of really interesting things to bring up because... And I do want to read a little bit more before we like really get into this. But essentially, mm -hmm. you know, we, we often will talk about how it's important to let people know that they're not going to have to live this this lifestyle of bland, tasteless, meager existence. And so I, I always kind of picture like the vegan foodies as sort of showing people, look how much good food there is out there to sort of counteract that idea. But essentially, this is sort of saying that by placing so much emphasis on on that aspect of it, it sort of justifies people who say, but animal foods taste so good. Like it sort of says taste pleasure is a really important thing. And I don't know. It's something that I, that I struggle with because I don't want to just present veganism as a bland, tasteless thing. But I understand the point of this article. But so, so the author does uh, admit that sometimes a, I think it was referred to as a well-placed food lure can break through someone who is resistant to going vegan, um, but then sort of ponders what happens when we place so much emphasis on taste pleasure. Uh, you know, like, like what happens when a vegan product is not as good as a non-vegan product? Like if we're saying it's so important that food tastes good and that vegan food is just as good as non-vegan food, but what happens when someone tries vegan cheese, for instance, and it's not as good as non-vegan cheese? Does, does the fact that they think that the non-vegan cheese is better than justify them continuing to choose that if so much emphasis has been placed on palate pleasure? And so the article concludes by saying... Not only does the overvaluing of taste pleasure frame the discourse in terms of human desires and not animal liberation, but omits the expansive problem of privilege essential to any project of total liberation. The persistence of these deep ideas, animal productification, food fetishism, privilege, must remain primary targets of any truly accurate and pragmatic total liberationist advocacy. <sighs> so... That's I, I think that's like a lot to take in, you know, as mm -hmm. as I, will, I must admit, as some our, our Instagram is where I put like my food pictures. And I feel like that might actually be like a I don't know if a prime example of because we do talk about animal rights stuff and we're posting about the the uh, the episodes that are coming out. 
but I think that some people might turn to that and say, well, this is an example of that. Like you're really glorifying, you know, it's something I really enjoy doing is going to these restaurants and trying the food and sharing that with everyone. So I, I'm trying to remove myself from that and not feel personally <laughs> attacked. But I guess I, I feel like it'd be it'd be silly for me to not acknowledge that I am a part of this thing that's being discussed. And I think that I think that we should acknowledge that there probably are many followers of the Instagram that don't listen to the podcast and only follow the Instagram because it has a nice, a, a lot of nice food picks that Andy takes and a lot of mediocre food picks that I take. <laughs> but your food does look delicious, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we talk about the ideas in this article, I want to talk about the one that came across my dashboard a little more recently. This is from January 16th of 2018. It's from QZ.com, which says, the philosophical case for going vegan is about pleasure, not preachiness. Starts off. Of course, reading and thinking are important, but my God, food is important too. These are the words of philosopher Iris Murdoch, and I am inclined to agree with her. Food is not just important to our health and our pleasure, but because it helps define the kind of people we are. In this regard, one might say, you are what you eat. And so the article kind of talks about the, quote, old arguments for veganism, just sort of being very moralistic and, and tub thumping, and then says, these kinds of arguments led to a widespread perception of vegans as morally righteous extremists, which made it easy for the majority of people to avoid considering giving up animal products. Those uninterested in pursuing modern sainthood by building our lives around duties and prohibitions could eat our cheeseburgers in peace. The new veganism, by contrast, recognizes that care for the self is an important and worthwhile pursuit, and it deems pleasure a central facet of that self-care. Emphasizing the pleasure of eating a delicious, colorful array of plant-based foods, such an orientation is about what you eat, not what you don't eat. The new veganism does not say, don't eat animals, but rather, eat plants. And so, yeah, the article just sort of goes on to talk about how, you know, like non-vegans can indulge in all these pleasures and the smell of a roast that's, that's cooking or something. But now vegans, too, can enjoy all those pleasures that meat eaters do. And it says that veganism encompasses this, quote, feel-good benefits of healthy living, that people get more energy and, and, and less heart disease and sort of invites us to cultivate a sound relationship with our body. So, so going vegan is this transformative thing where we get to sort of choose the type of person we want to be and not necessarily conform with Western culture. And then I'll just read the conclusion before we get into this discussion. Veganism then is a practice in which one becomes other than what one is. It involves a creative and experimental kind of work on the self. To become vegan is to take pleasure in disrupting environmental degradation, to enjoy the feeling of caring about the conditions of food production, to celebrate eating food that has been ethically produced. Being a vegan can be fun because it feels great to be a part of a quest for a kinder, more sustainable world. It feels empowering to take actions towards creating that world, to be one person in a movement that wants to make a difference. Self-care, after all, is not just about treating oneself well, since we all live in the world together. Self-care means exercising choice over how we think and attending to the steps we take to create a kind of world we want to live in. So I, I feel like it might seem like that the last little bit kind of got off on a different 
tangent, but I think it, it relates to this whole discussion because it's sort of talking about how like pleasure and enjoying ourselves and feeling good about the things that we're doing are like a really important thing. And I think translated over to advocacy, it's this article would say that it's important to talk about pleasure. It's important to talk about feeling good. It's important to celebrate eating plants, not just not harming animals. Like this is almost one that's almost saying, take the animals out of the equation. I don't think they're saying that entirely, but that line that's, you know, don't eat animals versus eat plants. So it makes it more about the food and less about the animals, which to me seems like quite a juxtaposition from the previous article, which is saying that turning the attention away from the animals is counter to what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So thank you for bearing with Andy's reading hour. (laughs) (laughs) I know people would have preferred if that was in Paul's reading voice. No way. (laughs) Yes way. But Paul, um, Mm -hmm. where, where do you think we should start with this discussion? What are your opening thoughts? So, I I will say spoiler alert in as a whole I think I tend to agree more so with the second article article and have more disagreements with the first article as a whole but one thing that I actually just wanted to start with I guess with the second article something an interesting point that just kind of popped into my head was while I agree with what the second author is saying about how this like doing eating vegan and doing vegan activism should be something that feels good to do. It's like, yes, I, I agree with that at the same time though. Isn't one of our, isn't one of our goals also to just make it the norm. And I I feel like once something becomes the norm, it's not something that you're like, Oh, I feel great about doing this. Like, Oh, I feel great about brushing my teeth every morning. And I feel great about you know taking a Not shower punching every day. old ladies <laughs> yeah yeah but do you know what i mean where it's like our ultimate goal is for this to become just what is but right now it's not so is it okay that is it okay to have this kind of shifting attitude towards it i'm not i'm not even saying that i'm posing that to you genuinely andy like is it okay that right now where we want veganism to be something that's seen as not exciting but something that it feels good to to be in vegan activism because we, we're we're working towards what we believe is the the most ethical way of being. But is it then okay to then say okay, and once we get there, now we cannot be happy about it anymore, and it's just it's just this is what it is, or is it kind of just like, and we get there and everyone's like, yes, we did it, we did it, and then over time it just kind of the excitement dies out. Is that just something that happens naturally? Well, I mean, it's like, are we as a society excited about not murdering people? You know, like, <laughs> obviously, we're sad when, when, when murders occur, but it, but it's sort of like that's, you know, not everyone adheres to it, but that's sort of like the the moral baseline, so to speak, is mm-hmm. not, not murdering people or, or not yeah. robbing people or whatever it might be, something yeah. that is still engaged by a few, but not the norm within society. Like, we're not all walking around exuberant that that's how we all feel about things, but you know, if perhaps 10 years ago, everyone was murdering everyone all the time, then yeah, maybe we would feel good about it. Maybe we would feel really happy and walk around skipping to and fro. So do you think then that, then that's not, uh, would you not consider that then a criticism of that second article then? Because it's more of something that's just like, once it becomes the norm, the excitement maybe dies down. Or do you think that it's a criticism of the, the second article? I don't know, because part of me thinks that, you know, like, okay, you said, should people feel good about doing the activism? Or, like, is that, like, a necessary part? 
I feel like that's a good motivating factor. I think at the very least, we don't want people to feel bad when they're doing activism. You know, there's 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 a lot that does feel bad about it. You're exposing yourself to people that might not care currently about what's going on. And, you know, this is this is for anybody, not just vegans, but obviously anyone that's working on any particular issue and you're out getting signatures or whatever it might be, you're putting yourself in contact, even just by being on Facebook, you're putting yourself in contact with people that don't care and are callous about their not caring. And that is a horrible and often traumatic thing to deal with. You know, it might be more of a low-key kind of trauma, but it's not an easy thing. Like, it feels bad to care about something that other people don't. So, like, I understand that there is an aspect of feeling bad during activism, but I feel like in terms of this, in terms of, like, like palate pleasure and pleasure, it's like we we... And I don't think that this is what uh, Jonathan, the author of the first article, is arguing for. I, I think Jonathan goes out of their way to say, I'm not saying that you have to be some sort of, you're not, you don't have to be someone that abstains from all pleasure in life or anything. But it's like, I, I don't know. I think that we do want it to feel good for people to do it. I was actually going to say, I was just going to say, I felt like the uh, Jonathan, the author of the first article would be listening to us having this conversation about like, should we feel good about this? And and they would be like, no, you can't feel good about anything. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> well, well, no, no, no. In, in all seriousness, though, I think that they would argue not, they would not say that that's silly, but they would say we are missing the point and that it's not, it shouldn't be about whether or not we feel good doing this. It should be just that it is the quote right thing to do and that's why we should do it i think that that's what they would say i and paul i agree with that like so it's interesting i mean i i i mean i find good in both of these these viewpoints i'm sure you do as well even though you said you tend to lean more towards the second one yeah but like from from sort of a logical standpoint i feel like i i agree more with with jonathan's article with that first article like like, it's not about whether something tastes good or not. You know, like, obviously, when I went vegan over 10 years ago, it was a lot easier for the people that did it 20 or 30 years ago. And the people that go vegan now, it just feels like, you know, for those who have access and, you know, in the financial means for, for the, the vegan replacements and all of those things, it seems like it would just be a walk in the park. Obviously, we know there are plenty of societal pressures and all that stuff that that exists that make it not a walk in the park, but like in terms of finding food options and, and not worrying that you're never going to have key lime yogurt ever again, or, you know, whatever it might be, <laughs> it's a lot easier now. And, and I always would say that, you know, regardless of these things existing, I would be vegan because it's the right thing to do. But I also think there is something to be said for making it as easy as possible for people to go vegan, for for making it an easier lifestyle to engage in, for people to stick to and stay with by having things that make it pleasurable. And I guess in terms of like the foodie culture, it's like some people are really into food. And is it isn't it okay that that gets transposed into vegan food? I think Jonathan makes a great point in that often the foodie culture loses the examination of where does the food come from, not just from the animal perspective, but from the human perspective and the you know chocolate and all that stuff. So I think that is a good point. I think that like foodie culture, just the article, you know, in the article, it says the only box to check after is it vegan is, is it tasty? And I think that there are other things that we should be concerned about. I do think that is a legitimate critique of foodie culture, but I guess I just wonder, is there no place for people showing that off to the other people within those social circles, 
you know, we always talk about we're, we're better when we, we sort of do advocacy to those that are most like us and those that are closest to us. And so, yeah, not everyone cares about following vegan food blogs, but for the people that do, shouldn't they be there for those people? I agree with something that you said early on in that last little bit that you just talked, which was you said that you agree with Jonathan logically. And, and I think to some extent, I also agree with them on, on logically somewhat, but I think where, where I don't agree with them is how this would be practically applied because I don't see a lot of the arguments that he's making, how they would be applied to vegan activism beyond just saying like beyond just going up to people and saying, you should go vegan because animals are not a commodity. The end. And and I I feel like if you're faced with any of the common, if you're faced with any of the common responses to someone who doesn't want to go vegan or who's resistant to it, I feel like that's when you have to bring in a lot of these other things. Like people are going to say, well, what am I going to eat? And then you're going to say like, oh, well, we have, you know, are you going to say, are you going to say to them, we have you can make like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a weird, you can have granola cake or something like that. I'm trying to think of like an unappealing food, but nothing is unappealing. Well, to me again, I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to mischaracterize Jonathan's argument because in the article they say, we're not, I'm not saying never talk about environment or health or even food, but that we need to be really careful about how we bring those things up. Like, I, I don't think that Jonathan would say people need to eat rice cakes with nothing on them. <laughs> you know, like you should eat food that's tasty to you and makes you want to continue to eat, you know, plant-based foods. But it's it's more this idea of making it only about the food. Yes, you're right. I was maybe over-exaggerating slightly, but... I might think that Jonathan would be against, given given this argument, I might think that they would be against, like, Gardein Chicken Tenders or any of the, you know, like the, the, quote, mock meats or anything like that. Because I think that some people would argue that, oh, well, that's that's still promoting eating chicken. And if we call it chicken tenders, even if we remove one of the vowels and put an apostrophe in it, it's still saying it's still promoting the idea to some extent that chicken is an okay thing. That's food. Well, to be fair, the Gardein ones are called crispy tenders, Paul. (laughs) But, but my, my point, my point remains in that. I think that if we followed this, because again, I'm, I like you, Andy, I think that there are great points being made. And I think that sometimes we do lose sight of promoting to people how these animals, these animals should not be used at all. It doesn't matter how, it doesn't matter if if they're being necessarily treated bad or quote, like humanely, they shouldn't be used at all. And I think we do lose that sometimes, but I think it's, it might be missing some of the very effective ways that people do get turned on to veganism. Because for me, and I know, like when I've talked to, especially like when I had, when I was still teaching high school and I had students and any of them expressed interest or any of them asked me how to go about doing this, I literally just said like, okay, tell me, tell me what you're eating like on a daily basis now. And then I'm just going to give you basically the vegan version of every, of, of all those things. And I feel like that's kind of, you know, Jonathan goes into you know when people compare 
the protein in chicken to black beans or something like that. It's like there are people who are concerned about their protein intake and they're going to want to know that if they switch to a vegan diet, their lifestyle is not going to suffer because of that. Yeah, I, mean, I guess I totally understand the point about comparing that that was being made between, say, chicken and, and black beans. But yeah, I'm wondering what is the workaround? What's like the practical way to talk about that? What would it be if we decided we don't want to compare those things? Would it just be, say, if someone's like, I don't worry about my protein, you say, you can get plenty of protein from, from XYZ without saying it's as much as this. I don't know. I mean, it, it sometimes it just feels like someone's like, well, where can I get as much protein as chicken will give me? And I, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm hard pressed to find what the conversational workaround is. You know, obviously there are like the memes that are like comparing, you know, beef to broccoli or whatever it might be. Maybe that would be where like the author takes up issue, I guess. But again, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to not see the benefit in that for people that are, that are like wondering, like you said, like to make sure that their lifestyle won't suffer. Like, I, I feel like maybe the workaround is if someone comes up to you and, and you're talking to them about this and they say, well, how am I going to get as much protein as chicken? I feel like the, the the response to, like, really nail in what what this first article is trying to get in, the response would be something like, well, we don't I don't see protein from chicken as something that's even going to be accessible. Like, I don't see that as protein that's even going to enter my body or something along those lines. And then you would follow it with the protein that I get is from beans and tofu and stuff like that. But that, but the, like, that's such like a clunky thing to say. And it's so much easier to just say, here's some guardian crispy tenders. They have the same amount. They have the same exact protein, you know, content. It's just so much easier. And I feel like it's to the person that's receiving that information. Some of these things are just it's just such a it's it's such a nice way to get the information or to get the idea across that they can do this and and I feel like that's kind of what Jonathan's talking about when they say meet people where they are like I, I don't I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing if I can say to someone you can keep doing everything that you're doing here's here's the couple of things to switch out and boom now you're vegan there you go and I feel like is is that not like meeting them where they are yeah, I don't know. It might be. It might be, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> but but I will say, again, I do want to say I think that the the concern that Jonathan brings up is legitimate. Like they're worried that people are still viewing animals as property or commodities. I think that is a legitimate concern. But Andy, let me hit you with this question. <laughs> If someone goes vegan, does it matter then? Because does like we've said we we've said on the podcast before, the animal doesn't care why the person's not eating the meat as long as they're not eating the meat. Now, now of course we can talk about we can get more nuanced and talk about well, someone's more likely to stay vegan if they do it for this reason or this reason and they might not stay vegan if they do it for this reason. So we can talk about that like the long term, but in terms of in terms of for the animal and what the animal wants, which is to not be eaten, does it does it does it necessarily matter that someone is vegan not for reasons that are 
like the the quote you know the right reasons yeah well i I guess i'm thinking that like what this article is sort of getting at is more of like the deep like if we're like truly trying to uproot speciesism isn't it important that we advocate for things in the right way you know if someone goes vegan for I don't know. I guess, I guess it would be saying something like someone goes vegan for this reason and they're just sort of replicating that structure. And is that ever going to lead to aquariums shutting down and the leather industry and all of those things if it's not really uprooting what what people's perceptions of animals sort of place in this world are for? Like if they're just sort of going plant-based, you know, like vegan dietarily because of it. I don't know. I, I guess I'm not not really firm in that, but I feel like maybe that's the sort of the danger of replicating those things. But I guess I have to agree with you, Paul, that like if if they go vegan and then they help other people go vegan and presumably somewhere along the line, they pick up the sort of all encompassing animal ethic of it. Is that such a bad thing? I guess to me, the big question is, isn't there a sort of a middle point between these two things? Like, isn't there a way to combine both of those things? I think in in many ways, Paul, that's sort of what we try to do with the podcast, where we do talk about the food, but then we also talk about the serious stuff. And I think that, you know, we never sort of consciously set out to, to like, make that, like, our mission or, to like, sneak people, you know, or, like, or to, like, hook people in with the, the food and then get them with the ethical stuff or something <laughs> like that. But I think that we've sort of learned that, you know, some people come for the food and they'll stay for the discussion or they learn about us from, you know, looking through the hashtags on Instagram. They see delicious food and they see, oh, they also have this podcast. Let me listen to the podcast. And I think that like something that we try and do with this show is to say you can love vegan cupcakes and also talk about these serious ethical issues. And again, I don't think Jonathan is saying you shouldn't love vegan cupcakes. And the <laughs> article acknowledges like, yes, I do splurge on the occasional pastry and, and eat the quote unquote junk food and all that stuff. You know, so I, I, again, I don't think that, that the author is saying never, you know, never <laughs> indulge in these things, but. But like I, I understand the point, and I think that I do worry about Sandy, who's the author of the other article. This sort of this idea that says don't eat animals, but rather say eat plants. You know, like those two messaging. Like I do worry about this messaging of the food losing the animals, and I do get frustrated with food bloggers that never talk about anything ethical, even if it's not super overt. But if they sort of like throw in a line about something here and there. And I do, I do get frustrated with that. I do feel like it's sort of missing the point. And I do feel like really popular vegan food bloggers that never talk about the ethics of, you know, consuming animals or not consuming animals are missing out on a really important opportunity. And I think that often a lot of times they don't talk about it because maybe they're worried about losing followers. I, I do agree with you that I think, I think that is a good criticism of the second article, Sandy's article. And when you said earlier, though, that you were like, oh, are these two articles in that much of an opposition? I think that they are because I kind of feel like Jonathan is coming to it from a logical standpoint and Sandy is maybe coming to it from a purely trying to be practical, maybe standpoint, like saying like this is the this is the thing that's going to get the most people to become vegan. So that's why we should do this. But. But I think that without some of the foundation that Jonathan is worried about people losing, I think purely just getting people to go vegan without any of the animal stuff might 
you know, I, I think your rate of losing vegans will probably go up because of that. So I think, like you said, there probably is some happy medium between these two articles. And that, that, that might be where we should try to, you know, try to go. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm thinking about that, the Randall's Island uh, vegan food and drink fest that, that I did with Compassion Company and you were there as well. Mm-hmm. And it was like all about the food, but then they also had sort of messaging all over the place as well. And it seemed like they were trying to strike that balance of sort of getting people in with the food, but then also making sure they didn't forget why this event was being put on in the first place. Yeah. Which is something that some some festivals that I've been to don't really try and do that. And I don't know that every festival needs to do that. I don't know if every festival needs to be the same necessarily. But I guess I, I appreciated the way that, that that festival in particularly handled the situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I think I also thought when I was reading Jonathan's article, I thought that some of the arguments were more of a criticism of how our society is as a whole rather than specifically the vegan community. Like I, I feel like Jonathan was going against foodie culture a little bit as a whole and, and then kind of saying like, don't just, don't just be vegan in that culture, in that community. You know, it's like, because we should be resisting that community or that culture. Yeah. And I think that there are a lot of activists that say, well, like, let's use the existing infrastructure to sort of get some leverage, get our foot in the door for promoting veganism. And so I think what Jonathan is saying is that like that mindset in general is harmful. So like, yes, it is a critique of foodie culture in general, but it's sort of saying, do we need to replicate that in our quest Mm. for animal liberation? I don't think it's quite the same or quite as harmful right but say people that say we have to leverage toxic masculinity to our advantage and we have to you know show off you can you can still be a bro and you can still be like a like a meathead at the gym but you just happen to eat plants and sort of meat is for pussies like all of those things are just sort of leveraging toxic masculinity to to get people that are like fully entrenched in it to go vegan versus the people like say a Carol Adams, right. Who would say, well, we like to truly do what we're trying to do. We need to uproot those things and we shouldn't Mm -hmm. be reinforcing toxic masculinity in our effort to liberate animals. Yeah. I I think I, I a hundred percent agree with what you're saying that I, you're right. I think that's what, that's what he's trying to do. And I, I think what you made was like a, a good comparison to what he's trying to do, but it's for me, at least like the foodie culture, is is not it's not at like the level of toxic masculinity or a lot of these other issues that vegans a lot of times there's a lot of tension between vegans who some say like no we need to insert veganism into this thing versus other people who are like no we need to we don't want that thing so don't just make it vegan and for me personally i mean i haven't read too many other criticisms of foodie culture so i think for me that it was it's not as much of a big deal for vegans to kind of you know take over foodie culture or use foodie culture to promote veganism yeah and yeah i guess i'm someone that despite loving to eat and loving to take pictures i am not like plugged in to foodie culture you know like obviously i follow other vegan instagrams and stuff like that but honestly not that much 
and there's you know a certain like brand of vegan food person that I sort of follow, and there's like this whole other ilk that sort of probably is more emblematic of what Jonathan's article is is talking about. Yeah, maybe sort of excess and not really worrying about where food is sourced from, and and all of those things. And so I think there probably are a lot of legitimate critiques of of foodie culture that, you know, we're not so deeply entrenched in it that like we, we truly recognize it and, and perhaps Jonathan is. So like, so I get that. And, and of course there is sort of the obscenity of people sort of really glorifying all this food when there are so many people in the world that are going hungry or, or are food insecure and don't have access to these things. So like, I get that. And those are things that, that were brought up. So, so I understand that. So I guess it's sort of how do we have like a responsible foodie culture might yeah. be more of the question for me. Cause I think I'm with you that I don't, I don't, maybe this is my own prejudice, but I don't see it as being on the same level as a lot of the other social ills that are often used to promote veganism, like sexism and, and sometimes racism and, and whatnot, that it just, it feels like it's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's not, it, obviously it's not the same thing, but like this, this, you know, the severity of it feels like to me, it, it doesn't seem as harmful for us to sort of use that as a, a wedge to get, you know, get our foot in the door to promote veganism. Yeah. And, and I guess to tie it back into the question we were asking, which was, is pleasure based activism harmful to animals? I would say, I I would personally say, no, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that promoting vegan food is is always going to be the same as saying your tastes are what really matters and not the animals because I, I think that while Jonathan brings up the good point and the point that I actually use a lot when I'm talking to to non-vegans who say oh but how could you not eat bacon or how could you not eat chicken or something like that and I'll put in in so many words I'll say that you know, my, like my ethics aren't overweighed by just the taste of the food. Like the taste of the food isn't enough to overpower what I think is the the right thing to do. And even though I do agree with Jonathan on that, I don't think that it's the same thing to say, Hey, do you like eating chicken tenders? Why don't you eat these ones instead? They're very, very good. And, and of course, like Jonathan brings up, is then the problem going to be or will will the vegan food always have to be better than or equal to the non-vegan food? And I don't necessarily think that's that's true. I think people are still willing to eat vegan food, even if it's not exactly the same. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think sort of as we wrap this up, to me, I just keep coming back to that the midpoint that I was hoping to find. And I think that there is a way to both celebrate delicious food and sort of promote it and let people know that you, you're not going to be living some life devoid of all pleasure, but still keeping the animals as front and center as possible. And I think that it's hard for me to imagine vegan advocacy that doesn't discuss the food because as we talk about so much, it starts with food for so many people. 
you know, even mm-hmm. even like the majority of people who are still like staunchly like abolitionist, like they still say like, yeah, food is what gets people in there. There's few people that go vegan because they start by say not wearing fur or not wearing leather and then transition to vegan. But there's a lot more people that go vegan and then get rid of their leather shoes and belts and stuff like that. So like to me, it is still really important because that's the thing that we're engaging in, you know, hopefully three times a day. And it's something that's like really a part of our identity. It's like really ingrained. And I guess that's kind of what Sandy's getting at in that second article, right? Which is it's a part of our sense of self that we're like reinventing when we go vegan. As as much as we want to tell people you can be same old you when you go vegan, like there is something that changes and your perception of the world hopefully changes when you go vegan. Mm-hmm. But do you do you tell do you tell that to the person, you know, when you're you know, when you're handing them the vegan flyer or something like that, do you tell them you're going to change as a person? <laughs> Brand new you right here. Just got to <laughs> sign up and take this pledge. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think that that is something that I struggle with as well, because for me, I do feel like I have changed very much as a person as a result of going vegan. And it's sort of shaking sort of the foundation of my beliefs to the point where I started reexamining other things and it started me on a journey to where I am now. And I will hopefully continue to become a, a much better person than I am now. I'm sure I'll look back in 10 years and be like, Ugh, can't believe you talked about that on the podcast. But <laughs> you know, I, I think that it's, it's like a weird balance. Cause it's like, yeah, you don't want people to feel like, Oh, you're, you're joining a cult and you're going to have to add go vegan to your middle name on Facebook. And you're going to have to do this <laughs> and not, not sit with your friends and family that are eating yeah. meat and all, and all of those things, you know, but I don't know for some people that might be appealing for some people. They might say, I'm looking to make a new me. I'm looking to reinvent myself and, and reinvent the way that I relate to the world, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I, I guess, I guess my final thought is I think that we, should be careful about how we promote food and and foodie culture. But I think that it's, to me, I view it as an, an important piece of the puzzle, but it's not the whole puzzle. Mm-hmm. And that those who just promote the food without talking about the issues are not doing as much as they could to promote veganism. And they're, they're missing an important opportunity to advocate for animals. I think I agree with that, Andy. I'm glad we could come to a nice, happy medium. <laughs> yes indeed medium.com medium.com so if you want to weigh in on the conversation feel free to send us in an email at thebeardedvegans at gmail.com and let us know what you think is there any points that we missed is there anything that we didn't discuss is there anything that you want to critique about us send in an email can't wait to hear can't wait to hear from people on this one I think that people <laughs> might uh, have some opinions which is okay this is good. It's yeah, good. we we love opinions. We love opinions. <laughs> so, what do you got coming up, Andy? Uh, this weekend, Vegan Street Fair in Los Angeles. That's going to be March twenty fifth. You should come on out, Paul. Come on <laughs> out. I'm going to have a big twenty by twenty tent with all sorts of shirts there. So, it's going to be a big old display. Uh, March thirty first, I'm at the Indie Veg Fest in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, April 7th, I'll be at the Nashville Veg Fest, Nashville, Tennessee. April 14th, Wilmington Veg Fest, Wilmington, North Carolina. 
April 29th, the VegFest Michigan in Novi, Michigan. And as always, I have plenty of dates on through the rest of the year. Uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, New Jersey, Colorado, North Carolina, New Jersey, all the way out to October. So if you want to find out all the dates, deets, and links for the ones I mentioned or any of the other ones, you're curious, just head over to Compassion Co. It's CompassionCO.com. And at any of the events, come find me and sometimes Paul behind the table and say, what's up, Beardo? We'll hook you up with a button and sticker and maybe we can chat for a little bit. Yeah. So, Paul, I, I couldn't help but notice you made an Instagram video, uh, Instagram story last night that referred to yourself as the second favorite host of the show. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that makes me the third favorite host of the show because people don't know this. There's a new favorite host of the show, which is actually lab-grown Paul Steller, <laughs> which we've been, we've been cultivating in a meet. We call him Clean Paul. So he's now everyone's favorite host of the show. Um, but we're still, we're still working on him because version 1.0, all he does is just repeat the following seven words. We are the Bearded Vegans, signing off. So when we started, as you know, dear Beard, as you know, dear Beardos, <laughs> analyzing the two. Th- uh, yeah. Did you look at? Did you see the sign? Did you look at that article? Oh no, I did not. Go go look at it really quick. I saw the sign. <laughs> you know what? You know what, Andy? This isn't really relative to the conversation. Hold yeah. On. Yeah. I thought someone was knocking on the door. I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> Hello? Nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think that that is something that I struggle with as well because I feel like I have. <laughs> Dergs. I think you meant to say Trump's rule, not Obama's rule. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to take a clip of you saying Trump and cut it and paste it into that spot. All right. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> give me a give me a clean Trump take. Um, I don't even remember what the full sentence was. Just you? say Trump. <laughs> Trump. Cool. I'll go. I'll do it. <laughs> uh, God. Oh, no, no. Okay. Trump's Trump's Trump's. Under Trump's rule. Trump's. <laughs> Trump's. <laughs> right, quiet, qu- quiet on set. Quiet on set. Here we go. Trump's. Beautiful. <laughs> That's a wrap, everybody. <laughs> All right.